0: The internet can be a goldmine for identity themes.
1: Hey, big score? Six pack of passports. You? A couple social security numbers. Ah, uh, well, beats real work, right? <laughs> <laughs> it can be dangerously easy to steal your identity. LifeLock
0: by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but everyone can save up to 25% off their first year at LifeLock.com aware. Identity theft protection starts here.
1: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
0: This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: And good evening. It is true, this is A Different Perspective, and I am Kevin Randall, believe it or not. I am joined tonight by one of the guys considered the UFO historian. I think of him, I think of uh, Jerry Clark, I think of uh, Jan Aldridge as sort of the historians of the field collecting A great deal of information so we've got Barry Greenwood and we'll chat with him in just a second I'll let you know that he has pursued the topic since 1964 he has served as an investigator and a state section director for the Massachusetts MUFON for about 10 years he specializes in researching government documents in the late 1970s which led to the 1984 publication of Clear Intent which is a book that he wrote with Larry Fawcett He's edited the newsletter Just Cause for Citizens Against USO Secrecy from 1984 to 1998, and much of his research has been published in the MUFON UFO Journal, Flying Saucer Review, and a v- variety of international publications since the mid-1970s. In more recent years, he has uh, specialized in UFO history, and that's what we'll be talking about tonight, or uh, in a few minutes here, uh, compiling the New, York, New England Airship Wave of 1909, and editing UFO Historical Review, which is a newsletter he began in 1998. He has published the online Union Catalog of Periodic UFO Articles. It's a massive listing of UFO articles published worldwide in periodical literature, which would be, of course, magazines and, and the like. He is an associate of Project 1947 and the Sign Historical Group, and oversees the massive archives of historical UFO materials he has held memberships in the American Astronomical Society, American as- Association for the Advancement of Science, and continues membership as a fellow of the british interplanetary society um, the uFO he, he believes that the UFO con- con- controversy is a topic that deserves continued monitoring and investigation in the event that uh, one or more of the incidents reported may exhibit proofable sign, provable signs of a previously unknown phenomenon. Many of the UFO incidences on record are often highly unusual and difficult to explain but do not provide proof of extraterrestrial or otherwise exotic origins that are commonly expressed in popular media. It is urgent that the immediate, immediate attention be given to both preserving the existing records and duplicating those records into other forms for future dissemination and study in the event That important elements of the information may contribute to a solution or solutions to the more mysterious incidents. That is my long-winded introduction to Barry Greenwood, and I will say now, welcome, Barry Greenwood.
3: Yes, I'm here. That sounds like where I'm coming from.
2: (laughs) Is there something you'd like to add, some uh, additional books or articles you'd like to uh, talk about?
3: No, I don't think so. They're all out there somewhere. They can be found eventually.
2: And uh, your website is www.greenwoodufoarchive.com?
3: And- yeah, it's, it's basically an in- inventory of uh, UFO materials that uh, I usually keep around here. The ones I don't have, I'm trying to track down. So uh, it, it's a resource. I, I try to uh, consider it like a library where I, I can be asked about something and locate it quickly and, and get it out there.
2: And I guess you're involved uh, with uh, www.project1947.com?
3: Yes, since about, oh, 1995 or so when it first started.
2: So a lot of the material that you found, we can find online if we have additional questions about what we discussed tonight.
3: Yes, uh, the inventories catalog, what I have collected here, now a lot of it I can't post because of copyright law, you have to be careful over that, but... Uh, If if I receive simple requests uh, for information, I I can uh, usually comply with them. And and if it's something I don't have, I may know someone else that has it or eventually track it down through other sources. So I, I want the information on the subject to be accessible.
2: Well, and then, I mean that's a, the worthy goal. I used to to like to brag that I had a complete set of the Project Blue Book files on microfilm that I'd collected over the years, and realized that fold three is pretty well uh, mitigated that uh, exclusivity that I had. They, they
3: they have to a point because uh, sometimes it's hard to use. As an interface, uh, you put information in uh, requesting certain case files and all. They don't turn up very easily. You have to dig very deeply sometimes into the site. It's great that they're up. They have uh, uh, very good resolution images of the files, and, and they can be reproduced very well for personal use. But uh, Let me
2: interrupt, let me interrupt yeah. here because we're getting right up against the break, and we're going to have to take that break here in just a moment. For more information, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and we will return right after this. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic downtown Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, old Florida cuisine at its best.
4: If you're a seeker, don't miss the inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening between the dark and the daylight. This remarkable work chronicles shamanic counselor and indigenously trained dream decoder Sandra Cochran's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers throughout the Americas. Sandy's initiations across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt, combined with her knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth, influence her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private readings, sacred international journeys, a meditative CD, and her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate your Earth walk and create a deeper connection to yourself. Find this and more at her website, StarWalkerVisions.com
2: And as promised, I have returned with Barry Greenwood. When I so rudely interrupted him, we were talking about the Fold Free uh, website that has a great deal of the Project Blue Book information online. And I know, Barry, you had a couple of comments about that, and I wondered if we had finished with that, or did you have something else you wanted to add?
3: Yeah, just a bit more. You know, As I said, Fold Free is a great site and all, but there are things missing there. There's another site called the Blue Book Archives which contains essentially the same materials, but only up to about 1960, or uh, 56, rather. And uh, that's a little bit easier to use to find things. But like I said, it cuts off at 56. They couldn't complete.
5: The we're going family style deal.
1: Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I
5: need some of your quarter Pounder.
1: I'll try your filet fish.
5: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer
4: love getting prices that are lower than low on food that's fresher than fresh then shop at kroger we give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the kroger app where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low
0: kroger fresh for everyone it's the big ten dollar sale so mix and match and get two three four five or even ten for ten dollars with your card so many great deals kroger fresh for everyone
3: the project for you know lack of funds and and uh, it's there uh, for use with any older materials. But uh, fold three you can use for later things. And you mentioned there are microfilms out there. If people want copies of any of these things, they can uh, you know get microfilm or download them. I, I have a copy of the entire Blue Book holding uh, on my disk, so uh, it's all there, and, and I can pull it when I need it.
2: I have I have I just have the microfilms so that gets a little cumbersome trying to sort through those. The Blue Book Archives is a real easy uh site to use. I, I will agree with you on Fold Three you kind of have to hunt hunt around for stuff, so it's more complicated, but you yeah. usually get what you're looking for.
3: Yeah, it, it's laid out, uh, you can locate things by frame numbers and all, but of course you need to know what you're looking for first uh, to make use of that. So while the film's on there, it's it's broken up into categories, and that's what makes it difficult to use. There there are lists of sightings uh, for each month of each year that, that Blue Book covered, but uh, as I said, it doesn't include everything. There's some sightings that just aren't there at all, and you have to dig.
2: Okay, I think we've disposed with that. Right. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead here now to something I was actually gonna hold till later, but i, I we'll get into it now uh, to dispose of it properly. Uh, last week we talked to uh, Colonel Charles Halt about the uh, Wendelsham Forest Bentwaters uh, incident of. December 1980, Mm. and in the course of that, of course, what I was trying to discover was somebody had said, and it may have been on my blog, it may have been something else, but somebody said to me that had it not been for Larry Warren, we would not have known about the Rendlesham Forest case, and it seemed to me that that uh, that the uh, researchers in Great Britain had actually kind of broken the case before it got got over here, and that Larry Warren was the one that approached you and Larry Fawcett about that. And so I thought we'd we'd kind of talk about that. Um, That is true. Larry Fawcett did, I'm not Larry, Larry, Warren, did contact you, didn't he?
3: Yes. Uh, Well, he he attended a lecture by Larry Fawcett in Connecticut years ago. And and after he uh, listened to Larry's talk, he went up to him and told him this story. Uh, Larry uh, Fawcett contacted me by phone and and told me what uh, Warren said. And Larry didn't know anything about the case. He never had heard of uh, Bentwaters and all until Warren mentioned it. And I told Larry that I had heard of it, but only in rumor form. I think there were some articles or at least one article in the British publication Flying Saucer Review that had mentioned these stories about sightings at the air base and some odd stuff going on. But they didn't have a whole lot of detail about them. And, which, which,
2: if I can break in here, will kind of confirm what halt had said last week that,
3: yeah, yeah, some
2: of the stuff had gotten out in Great Britain, but the the information right. wasn't wasn't completely accurate, but they had kind of the essence of the story. So this predates right. Larry Warren approaching Larry Fawcett.
3: yes, it does and,
2: and you had heard and you'd heard about this stuff prior to Larry Warren approaching Larry. I
3: had heard about it via those sources that Holt's alluding to, uh, probably around nineteen eighty one when the, the rumors were published. And uh, so I, I, I was aware that something happened there. But when Larry told me about Warren's comments, it, it rang true. And I, I figured we had someone who was either there or was close to people who were there. So uh, we arranged to speak to Warren in more detail. And uh, he told us a long story about uh, sightings over the base and, and uh, trip into the woods by Colonel Halt and some of his men. Larry said he was part of it. And uh, when he went into detail. uh, He didn't have any paperwork or anything about the story. It was just his uh, knowledge of of having uh, been exposed to that information. So uh, it's true that if it wasn't for Larry Warren, we wouldn't know about the story. He was really uh, the first one that gave us concrete details that we could act upon. So what I did was I called a friend of mine Bob Todd who was a uh, well-renowned freedom of information act researcher on UFOs he had been doing it since 1976 and we had thousands of pages released over the years uh, with the help of Bob and other people So well, I'll, Bob, I'll
2: break I'll break in here right here and yeah, say Bob Todd Bob Todd is um, was somewhat curmudgeonly, to be, be kind about it, <laughs> but he was he was death on FOIA requests. He would get stuff that nobody else seemed to be able to get, so he was extremely well-versed in how to operate that system, and I think we learned about Project Moondust, which was a wider UFO investigation that was going on uh, through information that Todd, Bob Todd originally found, so we do owe him a debt for that that reason. Yes,
3: well, uh, the curmudgeonliness of Bob, I think, was largely due to his impatience with how the UFO field had had uh, behaved over the years. He didn't like uh, uncritical belief in the subject. He believed in documenting things, and uh, he, he had a short temper for the, the common thread in the subject that uh, – Aliens were here from other planets or, or wherever and it was uh, those ideas were treated as uncritical truth and And Bob felt there wasn't that kind of evidence, but he thought digging into government files uh, to verify some of those secrecy and conspiracy ideas would be very helpful and the FOIA uh, uh, allowed him to do that along with, with everybody else that used it. So, so we
2: so you were you were contacting him about yeah. the Bentwaters case and he was doing his thing looking for documentation.
3: Yeah, what I did was I explained the detail that Warren gave us. And he went ahead and filed FOIA requests for any paperwork. And a short time later he'd received a response from the Air Force which included a document which is now known as the Holt memo. Uh it officially discussing this whole thing and 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 it wasn't in extreme detail it was only one uh, one page or so but uh, it gave enough for us to really do a follow-up because here we had an air force document signed by a witness who was uh, in the air force at the time and the odd way the document turned up was the air force didn't have it in their files they went to the ministry of defense in britain to get a copy back of what was submitted to them by colonel halt from the base I thought that was really strange because there was no requirement uh, of the government to go pursue records that were out of their hands. But that's what they did, and, and apparently someone felt that we should see this information, and, and it was released. So Bob sent it along, and uh, I looked at it, and I showed Larry, and I said, wow, I, I think we have something here. So, and by Larry,
2: uh, you mean Larry Fawcett?
3: Larry Fawcett, yeah, I'm, yeah.
2: Larry's in the program here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, too many. Uh, So, you know, Warren's story had some credibility to it. But as he continued on, after we had the Halt Memo and all that, we sent it over to England uh, to help the researchers there. And that turned into another ugly story. But I I won't touch that right now. Uh, Warren expanded on the details of his involvement. And it, it it went into things about underground bases and seeing, uh, aliens behind screens, uh, talking about, uh, uh, their origins and all. I, I'm listening to this and I'd say, that's, that's really strange stuff. And, uh, I didn't expect that kind of detail out of Larry because it didn't sound like, uh, the story went that far, even with the rumors, but, well, uh, when he was
2: talking about underground bases, he meant underground bases under Bentwaters yes, in that area, right, not, right. not 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 the, the the stories that we get in the United States now about all these. No, no, this was underground England. bases. All this this is an underground base under Bentwaters.
3: This was at Bentwaters, right? He was saying that the, there was a secret facility there that he was brought into, and and he okay. felt he was he was drugged too. He, he said he was uh, drugged at the time, which was I think part of the conspiracy meme, anyway, but. Uh, he, uh, he told us that story and then uh, I'm trying to verify any of that from uh, folks in England and all and I, I wasn't hearing that and a short time later Larry had called me one night on the phone I, I had worked a night shift and I, I got home about 11 30 or so so this is really late at night and he gives me a buzz and says uh, he wanted to tell me something he had to own up to a problem, and that was that uh, that part of the story where he said he was brought underground and saw, saw this lurid detail about alien contact was uh, not his story. It was the story that uh, a friend of his uh, in the security police at the time, Adrian Bastinza, had told him. That was his experience, not Larry Warren's experience. So I said, uh, uh-oh. <laughs> You know, we were investigating this case, and and here the main witness uh, essentially falsified detail. And but I, he
2: but he did come clean.
3: He came clean, yeah. And, and I, I don't quite know why. I mean, I, I knew no better uh, whether that was true or not about him. But he uh, he came clean on it and said that wasn't so. Maybe he felt that we were doing a lot of checking and uh, we would go down uh, dead ends using that detail that he was giving him. His story was that Bastinza was not willing to tell the story, and Larry was adopting Bastinza's story in an effort to flush out Bastinza. In other words, if, if Larry gave the details of this out, Bastinza would feel like, well, it's, it's out in the open now, so I'll tell the story as it happened to me. Well, he didn't do that. He stayed quiet. So Larry was dangling in the wind with this fake story as to being his story. So I said, that's a real problem, Larry. I said, it's going to have to be a lot of explaining to do. Uh, But, you know, it kind of blew up on him at the time. People found out about it. And then there was another incident uh, involving the Halt Memo, which I mentioned earlier, that uh, we'd sent it over to England uh, with the hope to get people to talk, open up new channels of documentation and uh, we discovered later that the, the British investigators had, had taken the document along with the story and had gone to the British News of the World newspaper. It was a very lurid tabloid and uh, gave them the front page coverage on it, and they were paid a large sum of money.
2: Well, let's, let's just uh, – the, the the newspaper, the tabloid in, in uh, England was not quite at the level of the National Enquirer. It was a, it, a it, little bit better than that
3: yeah it was it was better than the inquirer but much less than the new york times <laughs> it was it, it wasn't,
2: wasn't a really credible source but it was more credible than than the national Enquirer.
3: It, it was probably on the level of a lot of uh, gossip publications today okay uh, well
2: the other was their forte was the uh, gossip pu-
3: publication yeah, yeah but you know they were looking for sensation and, and the bentwater story was certainly a sensation and with that document uh to to uh, Back it up. Uh, they thought it was great, so they put it on the front page, and okay. uh, they got okay. the investigators
2: we will we will come back to that in just just a few moments here we've got to take another break uh try to remember where we are and it and it it resonates with something that halt said last week as well that we can tie that all together uh as i say you know you can take a look for uh, more information about this sort of thing at www.greenwoodufoarchive.com and i always put something up about the uh the stories uh, that we, we cover at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So it, and it sometimes provides the links to other information that'll help you understand exactly what we're talking about. And in the uh, uh, interest of self-promotion, be sure to take a look at Roswell in the 21st Century, which will um, give you an idea of where we stand on Roswell. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. <music> And as I promised just moments ago, we are back with Barry Greenwood. We were talking about Bentwaters, and we're getting a little bit deeper into this thing than uh, we'd we actually planned on doing. Uh, one of the things I was going to say that, that you brought up, that the uh, Holt memo had gotten back to England and uh, got in the hands of the newspaper. And what Holt said last week that I found kind of funny was he got a call that there were some reporters at the front gate, and he said, hold them up there, and he went and pulled his uh, – his, uh, information packet from the PAO so that when they went to the POO for pictures and things like that they couldn't find anything on the halt and had to take the next higher level guy to put his picture in the newspaper which i guess didn't win him many friends but uh, i thought it was kind of a clever move on his part so we have the halt memo back in the hands of or in the hands of uh, british ufo researchers it's published in the newspaper and it's caused some additional trouble because of that
3: Right. Uh, Being in a tabloid newspaper, that was the last thing I really wanted to have happen because I thought the story, you know, in spite of the problems with Larry Warren telling a different tale than he should have, uh, I felt the the entire story had some credibility to it and needed to be followed upon. And uh, getting it into a tabloid paper first was, was just about the worst thing that could happen, and especially since the investigators uh, had been paid uh, good money for that story and never even told Larry Fawcett myself that they were doing that. So I, I felt at that point that, that the whole thing was out of control, and I don't know where it was going to go, but I, I told Larry on the phone that uh, I couldn't
2: Larry, go me, on, Larry, Larry Larry Fawcett,
3: Larry, Larry Fawcett. Fawcett, yeah. And uh, I, I told them that I couldn't continue with the story because uh, number one, our main witness falsified information. Number two, the British investigators had undermined us on that by by selling it off the way they did. So I was out of it by then. I, I just closed it up and and I let someone else take care of it. I, I tried, but it was just you know, there were just too many problems. So your credibility.
2: Well, but you're you're not saying that the the story itself is untrue. You're just no, saying no, that
3: no, I'm not saying the story was true, but uh, the way the story had opened up, it, it just went completely off track from from what we wanted to do. So you
2: haven't you haven't been involved in any of the more recent activities around Bentwaters.
3: Uh, very recent things, yes, because it, apparently there's another. Uh, development on Bentwaters where Larry Warren uh, had claimed that there was a photograph that he had taken uh, around that time in 1980 of uh, an A-10 aircraft during broad daylight that seemed to have a UFO hovering over it. And I I didn't know about the level of controversy over that in Britain. I don't follow current media on the subject too much. Uh, I'm still old-fashioned. I deal with photocopies and and old ways of doing things. But uh, I was advised by several people in England about all of this with the A-10 photo. And and uh, one of them, uh, Sasha Christie, had sent me a copy to show me what it was. And I looked at it and I said, well, I know the photo, but I don't know that UFO. So I, I went digging through my files. And I found that it was the same photo that Larry Warren had given me. Along with a group of about twenty others that he had taken during his honeymoon in England in 1985, when he returned, he was still he were still dealing with them and all, and the newspaper thing hadn't come up yet. And he handed us these pictures and said, "Oh, he took these while he was tourist uh, seeing sightseeing uh, in the forest in the areas near the base. The base was still active." And he took a bunch of snapshots of uh, where he thought some of the big events had happened. And uh, his new wife was in one of the pictures and all. So he, he looked at him and all. He had this picture of a helicopter and an A-10. But when you know, when I looked at the um, honeymoon pictures, there was no UFO in it. I, I said, "Gee, that's odd. How, why is it going around now with a UFO? So I sent the pictures over to England and, and said, look, this is the copy he gave me and as you can see, there's no flying saucer there, and there's, there's absolutely no evidence that the, the photo was doctored. The photos are legitimate. Those are the ones he handed to me, and they weren't tampered with. There's nothing there to talk about. It's no UFO. So I guess now it's exploded in England that, uh, you know, the fa- photos were faked and and people defending Larry, of trying to find ways to explain it, and people against Larry Warren, uh, they're using it to crucify him.
2: Well, I think we've we've kind of disposed of Bentwaters here. Uh, you know, I just wanted to get your take on it because of some of the things that uh, Colonel Halt had said last week, and and you being sort of a uh, neutral source on all of this, and it kind of gives a better perspective or a different perspective, if you will, on that sort of thing. Uh, when we look back at the UFO field, and I. You know, you do the history as you say, and you're you're really interested in the older cases. Is there one of the older cases that really kind of fires your imagination? That thinks, you know, had things been a little bit different, we we might have had evidence of extraterrestrial visitation or something that just really captures your imagination?
3: Uh, I, as far as hard evidence, uh, no, I really haven't seen anything like that. I and you know, I know that there are credible stories about CE twos, meaning uh, close encounters where. Uh, physical evidence is left behind in the form of tree branches broken, uh, grass matted down and burned, and, and uh, an assortment of, of, of uh, assumed artifacts from UFOs. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced any of those uh, qualify as proof. It's all circumstantial. And uh, crash saucers. I I think uh, you know you've known over the years that I'm pretty hard on crash disk cases. You being the Roswell guy and all, Uh, I I try to be very, very demanding on information like that. And before I'll go out and say that a report like that is true, because if if I do, then people are going to look at me and say, "Well, where's your proof?" It's hard to produce proof on UFOs. You, You can argue with very compelling information that people report and, and hopefully have multiple witnesses and all. But you just can't give them something and put them in, put it in their hands and have them put it under a microscope and analyze it and, and be conclusive about it. That's why the subject is still called unidentified. They haven't well, been are, identified. But are there cases that excite you? Uh, I, I've always liked the in Texas story. Uh, multiple let me, witnesses.
2: Let me break in here and say, yeah, because I've I've uh, a fan of that case as well, and and we'll let you explain what's going on there. But I would like to just say, yes, that's a very very good case.
3: Right. It, it's uh, it was a, a series of incidents, about eight or ten or so, maybe more, of people in the and area in different areas of the city. Uh, reporting seeing anything from a basketball-sized ball of light to an object that was about 200 feet long and shaped like an egg uh, appearing. And in, in many cases, the object's appearance was followed by people's vehicles, cars or trucks they were in, uh, stalling and, and, and losing their power. And it was widely reported at the time. If you look at the press from and even outside of the area, they'll, they'll discuss this, this car stalling problem that they had with uh, all the sightings. And uh, it, it alarmed the Air Force enough to look into it. Uh, Life magazine went down there and took pictures of some of the witnesses and all. They never published the story, which was very disappointing. But uh, there there is a life magazine photo archive you can go to and look up some of those pictures that they never published and they're really interesting. Uh, but the air Force ultimately had concluded that it was uh, this was a rare natural phenomenon that had appeared in the city and it was uh, it was generated due to uh, storms in the area at the time. They called it ball lightning. Now ball lightning. Uh, to this day, is, is still debatable, but I think many, many scientists accept it as, as true. It's just that you can't capture something like that easily and and, and do analysis on it. it the, the nature of the, the uh, reports on it are just they come and go. And uh, the thing that's cr- very credible about them is that there's a lot of consistency with the way people report them. So the Air Force invoke that as an explanation for leveling but i had never heard of ball lightning being 200 feet long or wide or high i
2: I would say ball lightning when it when it is uh, observed is very short-lived it's very small and Mm -hmm. sometimes kind of explodes i mean disappears with a pop and that kind of thing In in 1957 uh, the scientific community thought of ball lightning kind of in the same terms as UFOs. And I thought it was sort of silly that the air force is explaining one unidentified phenomenon with another unidentified. Right. I,
3: I thought that was very strange. Uh, the air force uh, had concluded in 1969 that there was nothing to investigate. And they felt the the, uh, the so-called Condon committee, which was their attempt to put the subject to bed had concluded there was nothing scientific to be learned from the phenomenon yet. They're talking about ball lightning, which to me is something that science has taken great interest in, and had uh, concluded that there was a lot to learn from something like that. And there are many scientific papers about it that can be consulted.
2: Well, I was going to say also that that um, the Condon Committee, of course, is the University of Colorado study commissioned by the Air Force so they could end Project Blue Book. But they uh, they solved one of the sightings in in their report as a natural phenomenon. So rare it had never been seen before or since. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. If that's the actual conclusion, there is something of scientific value to be learned by this extremely rare scientific or this uh, natural phenomenon. And they just kind of blew the whole thing off.
3: Yes. uh, uh, The the problem was the elusiveness of the ball lightning reports. Uh, Reports had continued for years. Later, I, I had received news clippings about incidents in massachusetts where i live uh describing uh uh, people seeing these odd balls of light that suddenly appear there was one report in quincy mass where a person had pulled into a driveway and they looked and saw this funny ball of light off to the side of the car after they had parked it and it moved up around the front of the car and over to the driver's side where it suddenly exploded But it it had performed, seemingly anyway, intelligent movement by following the contour of the car before it exploded. Now, you might infer there's something uh, electrical uh, interacting with the body of the metal car and all. But the the point is that that story followed consistently with many other reports of of a very rare phenomenon. And and a lot of people would call it a UFO type phenomenon. And it was credible. I, I I saw other reports after that from many, many other areas. I went through weather publications going back 100 years finding these things. So for the Air Force to invoke something like that as an explanation is astonishing. That, that alone should have convinced someone to keep the project going to monitor things like that.
2: But you can, you can argue that that's really not an Air Force function. Air it's not—it's
3: not their function, right? But the they, they had function. received military reports too, well, uh, but it, like that.
2: But I'm still—they're—they're they're not in the business of of understanding ball lightning. They're in the business right. of protection of the United States and that sort of thing and these sorts of things do not threaten national security which was the big thing in the Condon Committee there's no No. threat to national security that allowed them to uh, punch out of that this is my long winded way of getting to the point where I can now say we're going to have to take another short break here I will return with Barry Greenwood and we'll talk a little bit more about Leveland maybe get into some of the specifics of that case uh, in our last segment and uh, for those of you who are interested you can take a look at www www.greenwoodufoarchive.com or take a look at www.project1947.com and uh, you can learn some more about that and as I say repeatedly uh, more information will appear uh, about this and a link to this program again at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com Will we return right after this. And we are back with my guest, Barry Greenwood, who is one of the major historians of the UFO field. We were talking about the level land sightings, and we did a little bit of uh, discussion of ball lightning, which is kind of... um a related subject because some people have seen ball lightning and thought of it as UFOs and some of the ball lightning reports that I've found actually go back literally hundreds of years and it's clearly what they're describing is ball lightning as we understand it in today's world but we were kind of talking about the level land sightings which clearly were not ball lightning I think there's some dispute whether there actually was weather phenomenon I mean weather storms in the area at the time of the sightings I think the air Force kind of glommed on to some things uh, to suggest that but we had uh, stories of of uh, craft on the ground, craft interacting with the environment, meaning stalling car engines, dimming lights, uh, 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 filling radios with static. I don't know why I couldn't think of the word radio right there hmm. with static. But uh, the Air Force had said there were only three witnesses. Don Kehoe said there were nine. And if you go through the Project Blue Book files extensively and t- keep score – there were at least 13 people who were involved in this in 13 separate locations all around the Level Land area and in small towns right right near there. And, and for those who you who are unfamiliar with Texas, uh, Level Land is right now near Lubbock, so you can get an idea of the location of Level Land and, and all of that. Uh, so you are a, a, a proponent. You are excited about the Level Land sightings uh, as something anomalous.
3: Right. right. Now, now, I had mentioned that the Air Force invoked the ball lightning explanation, but also that there were aspects of the Leveland reports that that couldn't be ball lightning, in my opinion. Uh, For example, one of the motorists that was stopped, a fellow named Jim Wheeler, uh, he he was on a road about four miles or so east of uh, Leveland, and he said this object, brilliantly lit, shaped like an egg, 200 feet long. Settled down uh, near the road, and it blocked his path. And while it was sitting there, his truck uh, died as he as he got out to take a closer look. The object very soon after that took off, and its lights went out. The object's lights, and as it moved away, uh, Wheeler's car started up again and worked normally.
2: Well, there there's a question that come up, and I and I've actually gone through uh, Mark Rodiger's big. Uh, study of uh, these car stallings Uh, and the question becomes does the car start again spontaneously or is the driver merely able to start it again now that the object is gone
3: well that's the thing that you need in these stories is a lot more detail sometimes those details are left out in the in the retelling of them so uh, apparently some of the reports have the cars starting on their own
2: I think if you read the way the things are written and the, the way they're talked about, it's really not clear
3: right And, and some exactly. of us
2: you know the car started and you're thinking, did the did the driver now have to start the car mm. or did it start spontaneously? And I've looked through a lot of these sightings specifically for that thing and very few of them actually say the car started spontaneously Mm. usually it's something well the car started again or i was able to you know i was able to drive away so there's really not that one little critical detail but it sounds like they had to make some kind of um uh effort to start the car and i bring this up simply because in the condon report the big document about this they they don't really do much with this. They don't mention level land except in passing. And they had uh, one report that went to them from a a woman who uh, had her car stalled and said that she started it. And they went to investigate that and they could find no kind of a magnetic phenomenon that would suppress the car engine. And then when you removed that, Force it would start spontaneously. Somebody had to do something to start it. That was kind of what keyed my interest in that sort of thing and looking into that. So uh, I I, I just offer that out (laughs) as one of my observations.
3: No, that's that's a good point because I I think UFO investigation at that time, it was only ten years after this it became a subject at all. uh, the, The the organizations were in their infancy. And everybody was trying to figure out, what do I do? How, how do I investigate the subject? and And often when they did investigate, important details were left out, uh, misinterpretations uh, crept into the report. So yeah, you have to look at all of these very carefully. sometimes the detail is just too fuzzy. So you can't be absolute.
2: Well, the other thing that, that that struck me about this whole sort of thing is, you know, is talking about it being in the infancy. At this point, nineteen fifty-seven, the Project Blue Book had been become pretty rapidly anti uh, extraterrestrial, anti saucer. That, that this was nothing that the Air Force should be involved in, and and they they went out of their way to. Uh, supply answers even if the answers made no sense as long as we can solve the case and they looked for those sorts of things the air force investigation of this case which should have taken several weeks took most of an afternoon and it was a nco that came from uh, reese air force base which is in lubbock right located next to leveland and he talked to two or three people and that was really all they did the real problem was that NICAP was in a fight with the Air Force over congressional hearings and getting congressional hearings. And so they were so busy arguing over the number of witnesses and that sort of thing, nobody was doing any investigation.
3: Yeah, yeah. Air Force wanted the subject off their desk very quickly. And as reports came in, they'd they'd give passing attention to them, send investigators out sometimes, collect details and then file them and put them away. There's not much interest in scientific investigation. As you said, their purpose was national security. Was there any threat to the government or or people in the area? If not, they just file them.
2: And the the thing that always struck me about this sort of thing is we we look at the the investigation as supposedly being neutral, but they're really not quite neutral. No, no. And the the argument uh, between the private UFO organizations in the Air Force was getting in the way of the investigations. They were too busy arguing over trivial details like, well, there were only three witnesses. No, there were there were nine witnesses to really look at the thing and understand what was going on. And Level Land kind of brings all of that together. You've got multiple witnesses, as you mentioned, in multiple locations reporting the thing to the law enforcement in the area independently of one another. It's the next day you get a couple of additional reports after they realize they've seen something unusual. Uh, one of the things, and I'm going to bring this up because I can, I'm going to try to put up, I took pictures on some of the locations where the the, the sightings took place in the level land area in the last three or four years and if i can find the pictures my hard drive crashed and i lost some of this stuff but i can find those pictures i'll put them up on the blog so you can at least see the areas where they where the uh events took place in the level land texas area yeah. uh, is there another sighting like that that kind of excites you because we've only got a couple of minutes left here and we'll see if we can get something else going
3: uh well uh Besides Leveland, uh, I, I thought, and this is clearly alluding to what I wrote, the 1975 overflights of uh, military bases along the U.S.-Canadian border was rather remarkable. I wouldn't say it, it, the individual reports were on, the, on a par with what happened at a place like Leveland, but you had a collective uh, invasion of by something, along these bases during a very short period of time, and it always baffled me what was going on then. Uh, Even if you didn't consider these things flying over the bases were UFOs, what was going on? What was all this activity suddenly where it was felt necessary to intrude uh, on these bases and take a risk of getting shot at or or taken down and all? The the incidents at Loring Air Force Base, for example, in late October involved uh, helicopter Late October of? Uh, 75, 1975, oh. yeah, and uh, there were there were flyovers of uh, nuclear bombing loose on the base. They were very alarmed by this, um, and uh, the, the objects never did anything, but uh, I remember one of the commanders uh, at, at Loring had said that they had the thought of putting searchlights on these objects to get a better look, but they thought against it because they feared the blinding, whoever was flying these things and they'd nosedive into the bomb igloos and cause problems were they ever
2: uh, able to identify who the intruders were uh,
3: uh, the government no uh these apparently the alluring objects had sped off into canada and uh in, in at least one case they were pursued by a helicopter and uh nothing was found they they disappeared into canada somewhere and whether the Canadians had picked them up or not on their own detection equipment is unknown. Nothing's been released like that. There's been no overarching explanation uh, by the military as to uh, what went on during this time. There were well, more than one base.
2: Didn't they, didn't they talk in Loring case specifically talk about uh, unidentified helicopters? Uh, yes. I
3: mean, yeah. There were that was those were the, the main reports from Loring uh, In other places. There were lights, formations of lights, structured object scene. Uh, It involved Wurt Smith Air Force Base in Michigan, Malmstrom in Montana. Uh, There were reports from Plattsburgh Air Force Base, which I've never been able to get any paperwork on, but there were strong stories about intrusions there too. So, uh, uh, And this was all happening within about a three-week time frame. And after that, it just died except for other isolated incidents here and there. But it wasn't concentrated and organized uh, in these other locations. The Northern Tier was, was just a focus of some attention that was uh, rather inexplicable to me. And it's it's still, uh, to me, it's still a, a major event that, that should be uh, fleshed out more by government sources. Uh, let us know what happened here, because the, these intrusions went on without... Uh, any interference it was with impunity well
2: barry i gotta say and thank you for for showing up today on the program uh we're we're out of time and there's i mean so much more that i'd like to ask you and talk to you about so we'll probably have to drag you back to this at some point in the future um Your website is www.greenwoodufoarchives.com and you can find information at www.project1947.com and I will try to get stuff up about uh, some of the things that uh, Barry and I have talked about today at uh, the blog spot, at my blog, uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and we will return next week with... uh, some of the people at the university of texas to talk about the ramey memo and what's going on with that so we will we will be back with that show next week thank you for listening and that is it